Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this time uh, to come to worship you and, and to enjoy your presence and your empowerment and your filling us with your spirit and to enjoy your grace for us. Uh, we pray that you would just help us to glorify you and we pray that you would give us insight into your words, that you would give us understanding and clarity, that you would help us to know your word and your will and your plan. We thank you for your grace and amen. All right, so today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Uh, the vision, or the GCF Vision, is a term that we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on in a while, at least not since Greg was teaching at RCF. And uh, the GCF Vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore, and we're focusing on five of them. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based rather than performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So we are on subsection five of this series. Uh, last week's sermon or last week that I did, was called Introduction to Eschatology. And today we're starting um, something called Problems with Pessimistic Eschatology. So we're going to look at three main sections of Scripture that tend to cause people to buy into pessimistic eschatology or into an idea that the gospel isn't going to make much progress and that its progress is going to get slower and slower and slower until it comes to nothing. There's three main passages that people get that idea from, and we're going to examine each of them and to see if that idea should really be gleaned from the, these passages. So these passages are Matthew 24, the book of Revelation, and 2 Thessalonians 2. So we're going to try to do this timely, which will be a bit difficult. Today, we're just going to look at Matthew 24. Uh, and then next week we'll look at the book of Revelation, and the week after that, Second Thessalonians 2. So today we are going to look at Matthew 24, and I'm going to start by reading the whole thing. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 51. Jesus left the temple and was going away, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let not the one who is in the field turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath." For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth... uh, All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels out with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates." Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, where they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming." But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servant, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so this is a big passage, and we're going to try to make it through the whole thing. So pessimistic views of eschatology will typically interpret Matthew 24 as talking about a future great tribulation, just before Christ returns. But there is very significant reason to believe that the events prophesied in Matthew 24 took place in the first century, at least the first half of the chapter. Uh, Let's look again at verse 34. Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's pretty significant reason to think that this happened in the past. But let's try to get into detail as to what this may be referring to. So the great tribulation of Matthew 24 is referring to the great tribulation that the Jews in Jerusalem went through from 66 AD through 70 AD. And here's a bit of an overview. So in 66 AD, there was a Jewish revolt against the Romans. In response, Nero sent General uh, Vespian to stop the revolt, and by 67 to 68 AD, Vespasian had conquered most of Palestine. Vespasian's attacks got put on hold during 68 through 69 AD while the Romans had a civil war. But at the same time, the Jews were having a civil war in Jerusalem. And when the Roman attack was resumed in 69 AD, the Jews were already weak and uh, demoralized from their own civil war. And in 70 AD, Roman armies sieged and destroyed Jerusalem. 
During the period of 66 through 70 AD, the Jews had to deal with war with the Romans, their own civil war, and severe famine. The historian Josephus, in his account of the destruction of Jerusalem, wrote, It appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. Uh, We're going to quote Josephus a number of times, so I may as well give a short introduction to who Josephus is. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish author and historian who wrote a comprehensive 200-page eyewitness account of the Jewish revolt and the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, And that book is called The War of the Jews, and I will be quoting from him frequently today. So how does this passage relate to 70 AD? Because there's a lot of things in this passage, and some of them sound kind of weird. Some of them are like, what, what on earth is that talking about? Uh, we're going to try to explain most, if not all, of those. So let's start in verses 1 and 2, when Jesus says, no stone will be left on top another. Verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. But this is referring to the temple getting torn down by Titus. The disciples were talking about that temple, so Jesus, in that conversation, is talking about that temple. And that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. In 70 AD, Titus, um, the son of, who at that time had become emperor of Vespasian, and his troops looted and destroyed the temple before they burned the city down. Josephus wrote about Jerusalem saying that Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, and it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe that it had ever been inhabited. That seems like no stone was left on top of another. Uh, Moving on, What does Jesus mean by the abomination of desolation? What is that talking about? Let's look at verses 15 through 20 again. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let not one who is in the field turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. So when Jesus says, let the reader understand, what he's saying is, let the reader of the book of Daniel understand. Because he's referring to something that Daniel wrote. Let's look at Daniel 12, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So I do want to point out that so there was a lot of wars and fighting going on around this time. And in 66 AD, the zealots seized the temple. And in 66 AD, there were certain sacrifices that were being made to Yahweh on behalf of the Roman Empire. Basically like, God, please bless the Roman Empire. Uh, Because, you know, they were living there. But when the zealots seized the temple and took over, they stopped those sacrifices. And it was three and a half years later, which is 1,290 days, give or take, that the temple was destroyed. But anyways, why would it take special understanding? Why, why does he say, let the reader understand? I think this passage in Daniel likely has a double meaning. A great many of Jews probably would have seen it as already fulfilled uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes. And um, so he was 
from around the time 168 BC. And around 168 BC, he plundered the temple, killed 40,000 Jews, and erected an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar as an act of defilement. But there are passages in the scripture that have more than one meaning, such as when David is speaking in the Psalms about his own sufferings, and yet he's also prophesying about Christ's sufferings. I think this passage in Daniel is likely referring to both. But it's definitely at least referring to Titus, given what Jesus said. It's definitely at least referring to something that happened after Jesus' day. But in 70 AD, Titus also entered the temple to, and purposefully profaned it. Titus plundered the temple, and as an act of defilement to show his victory, he went into the Holy of Holies, spread the scroll of the law on top of the altar, and had sex with prostitutes on top of it. Titus also had his soldiers offer pagan sacrifices in the temple to show his victory over Yahweh. So Titus was in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, and when the Jews in Jerusalem saw that, that's when they should know the destruction's coming, the destruction of all of it. Jerusalem's coming to an end. But it's interesting, in, Matthew, in Matthew's account of the Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, but Luke puts it slightly differently if we compare Luke 21, verses 20 through 23. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it, its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these days are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. So you can see that the passages are talking about the same thing, but Luke, in Luke's account of what Jesus is saying, it says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and while Titus's armies were sieging Jerusalem, they were surrounding Jerusalem. So I believe that Titus is the abomination of desolation in the holy place. But what did Jesus mean when he said, let those in Judea flee to the mountains? In verse 16, Jesus mentions that those in Judea should flee to the mountains, which historical records state that Christians did. Towards the end of 66 AD, the Christian community withdrew to the village of Pella, which was a mountainous region east of the Sea of Galilee. Eusebius, a church historian from 300 AD, wrote that the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come thither from Jerusalem, then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against the Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. I may, be, may have quoted more of that than I needed to, but the point is, Christians fleed Jerusalem in 66 AD. Christians did flee for the mountains. Christians abandoned Jerusalem by God's warning through the Holy Spirit before it got destroyed. The Christians did flee to the mountains. But the Jews didn't flee to the mountains because the judgment was against them. Or the Jews who weren't Christians, I should say. So what, what does he mean by false Christs? Uh, Jesus mentions false Christs. Let's look at verses 23 through 24. 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead many astray, and if possible, even the elect. So there's a few things that Josephus reports that are probably what Christ is predicting here. Josephus reports that during the reign of Nero, deceivers and false prophets were arrested on a daily basis, and he also records several instances of imposters who enticed people into the desert, aka the wilderness, and elsewhere with promises of the Messiah's appearance. So there were false Christs in 70 AD luring people into the wilderness, or really just before 70 AD. Another thing I want to mention that identifies this passage with 70 AD, the difficulty of the times. Let's read verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. So I'm going to read some some things about how bad it was. Some of these are just... um, facts that I have written, and some of these are quotes from Josephus. So this is how bad it was in the Great Tribulation in 70 AD. As part of the Civil War, Jerusalem fell into anarchy and chaos, and in one instance, 12,000 of the city's nobles and leading citizens were tortured and killed by zealots. Famine set in, and even though the city had a stock supply of food, it was burned by the zealots. Josephus says, the madness, and seditious, the madness of the seditious did also increase together with their famine, and both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more, for there was no corn which appeared publicly. It was now a miserable case, and a sight that would justly bring tears into our eyes, insomuch that children pulled the very morsels that their fathers were eating out of their very mouths. So did the mothers do as to their infants. That's only the start of it. Jews who were suspected of hiding food were being tortured by other Jews. Josephus also says, The noise also of those that were fighting was incessant, or was nonstop, both by day and by night. But the lamentation of those that mourned exceeded the other, or exceeded the loudness of the fighting. They, moreover, were still inventing somewhat or other that was pernicious against themselves. And when they had resolved upon anything, they executed it without mercy and omitted no method of torment or barbarity. He's talking about how the Jews were torturing each other to get food from each other because the famine was so bad. Another quote from Josephus. It is therefore impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquity. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly, that neither did any other city suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. Another quote from Josephus. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were filled with women and children dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were so full of dead bodies of the aged. The children also of young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows. All swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps upon one another was a horrible sight that produced a pestilential stench, which was a hindrance to those who would make sallies out of the city and fight the enemy. People sold their homes and sold their children into slavery just to have food for money. Josephus tells of one woman who killed her son, roasted his body, ate half of him, and hid the remaining half. And when the smell drew others, she offered to share his body. Now, 
we're going to take a pause in this list of bad things, and I want to recall verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I would certainly call Jews torturing one another and murdering each other for food lawlessness increasing. And there isn't much an instance of love growing colder than eating your children. But it, it gets worse. Thousands of Jews were crucified in plain sight of the city walls, often at a rate of 500 per day. So many were crucified that Josephus wrote that there wasn't enough room for all the crosses, and there wasn't enough crosses for all the bodies. I'm going to read uh, two more quotes from Josephus. One would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it. But the blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain more in number than those that slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible because of the dead bodies that lay on it. Another quote from Josephus. When they went in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn, he's referring to the Roman soldiers, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses whither the Jews had fled and burnt every soul in them and laid waste a great many of the rest. And when they would come to the houses to plunder them, they found inside them entire families of dead men, the upper rooms full of dead corpses, that is, of such as died by the famine. They stood in horror at this sight and went out without touching anything. But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet they had not the same for those who were still alive. But they ran everyone through with whom they met and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies that they made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree that indeed the fire of many houses was quenched with these men's blood. Almost 100,000 Jewish survivors were sold into slavery, and according to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews died in the siege of Jerusalem, which for that day was a lot. One last quote from Josephus. The war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of. But of those wherein cities have fought against cities, or nations against nations, accordingly it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were." So sorry we had to read through all that. But um, these were very, very terrible times of tribulation. And Josephus says that there had never been such tribulation as this. Let's look at one more verse that I would say identifies 70 AD with Matthew 24. In verse 28, Jesus says, Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. But the, the word translated vultures here uh, is the same word for eagle. In Greek, they had the same word for vultures and for eagles. Uh, the KJV actually translates it eagles, or eagle in this, eagles in this passage. And the ESV, every other time this word is used, translates it eagles. But Roman soldiers had eagles on their shields. It was the symbol of their army. So when, where the corpses, there the eagles will be gathered. That's a reference to the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem. All right. Uh, I want to respond to some potential misunderstandings and potential objections. What about verse 14, where Jesus says the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the world? Let's look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations that the end will come. So the word that gets translated whole world is the Greek word oikomene. Uh, we have a slide with a definition. 
Um, so outline of biblical usage. The inhabited earth, the portion of the earth inhabited by the Greeks in distinction from the land of the non-Greeks, the Roman Empire, you get the picture. This isn't literally the whole world. This doesn't include North and South America. Let's look at some other instances where the word oikomene is used. Let's look at Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, oikomene, should be registered. He's not talking about North and South America. Uh, let's also look at Acts 17, verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Let's also look at uh, Acts 24, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader among the sect of the Nazarenes. And lastly, let's look at Romans 10, verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. So whatever Jesus is referring to here, it's biblically plausible that it happened before 70 A.D., especially because of two other verses I want us to look at. Two verses where the word oikomene isn't used, a different, more comprehensive word is used, the word cosmos. Let's look at Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Let's also look at Colossians 1, verse 6 which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. So Paul is saying that in the first century, the gospel is being proclaimed and bearing fruit throughout the whole world before 70 AD. Paul wrote these letters before 70 AD. And if Paul can say that in the first century the gospel is being spread throughout the cosmos, it's not unreasonable to think that in the first century the gospel was proclaimed throughout the oikomene. Uh, another potential misunderstanding or objection that I want to clear up. As lightning comes, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let's look at verses 22 through 28. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, there he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines to as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So verse 27 could be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, or it could be talking about Christ's second coming. Um, I kind of lean, well, I lean back and forth um, on which one it's talking about. But if, it's, if it is talking about Christ's second coming, he's not saying that these two events will happen at the same time. He's contrasting these two events because he's, he starts off talking about how deceivers are going to try to lead people astray and say, look, here's the Christ. Look, there's the Christ. And he's saying they're definitely wrong because when Christ comes, you won't be able to point to it and see it. It'll be like lightning when it goes from one end of the sky to the other. When lightning comes, you're either in the way or you're out of the way. There is no time to react. If you're in the way, you realize it when you've been hit. And if you're out of the way, well, you'll realize it when you see it. But you won't be able to point to it because by the time you would, it's gone. So Jesus is contrasting, if he's talking about the second coming, the destruction of Jerusalem from his second coming. 
another misunderstanding I want to clear up or potential misunderstanding is just verses 29 through 31 in general. Let's read them. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So among those who interpret Matthew 24 as being about 70 AD, not everyone thinks that verses 29 through 31 are about 70 AD, but a pretty strong case can be made that they are about 70 AD. And I personally believe that they are about 70 AD. So we're going to explain four statements that Christ made in these passages. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. What does that mean? Did that happen in 70 AD? So this phrasing is used in the Old Testament as an analogy of big national change happening or judgment upon nations. God used this phrasing when talking about Babylon. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 13, verses 1 and 9 and 10. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. So this is the oracle concerning Babylon. But what happened to Babylon? Babylon got destroyed in 539 BC. Babylon is no more. So whatever Isaiah is talking about with the stars of the heavens not giving their light and the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, whatever he's talking about, as far as it relates to Babylon, already happened. Because Babylon has been judged and destroyed and is no more. This phrasing is also used about Egypt. Let's look at Ezekiel 32, verses 1 and 7 and 8. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. But God already judged Egypt. This is, not a future, this is no longer a future judgment on Egypt. This phrasing is also used about Edom. Let's look at Isaiah 34, verses 4 and 5. All of the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up as a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, as leaves fall from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. But the judgment on Edom has already happened. So this phrasing is used three times in the Old Testament for things that are now past. And it's, it's an analogous phrasing. It has to do with national change and judgment on nations. It's metaphorical language. All right, let's clear up some more things. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So there's a few things this could be referring to. Um, Josephus gives two accounts that kind of relate to this. He gives an account of people seeing armies and chariots in the sky in 65 AD. And I have a, a quote here. Besides these, a few days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the 21st day of the month of Artemis, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those that saw it. And, there, and were it not for the events that followed it, namely the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 
of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before the sun setting, chariots and troops and soldiers in their armor were seen running, seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. But there's also uh, an event in those days that Josephus records, an account of a different occurrence where a star resembling a sword which appeared and stood over the city and there was a comet, Halley's Comet, that continued I guess, for a year. So there were signs in the heavens in those times, just before 70 AD. So either one of these could be what Jesus was referring to when he said, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All right, we're only a few minutes behind. We're moving pretty quickly. We don't have too much left. All right, let's get to the next thing that's somewhat confusing or potentially confusing. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. How on earth could that have happened around 70 AD? Well, I'll tell you. So Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament. And there's only one other place in the Old Testament where this phrasing is used. And that's in Daniel chapter 7. Let's read Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I we can see, uh, you know, that he's quoting it because Daniel said, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. But I want to point something out. This coming isn't a coming to earth. This is a coming to the Father to sit at his right hand and to have dominion. It says there came with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and a kingdom was given him. So this, domin this coming isn't a coming to earth, it's a coming to the Father to sit at his right hand. That's what Daniel was talking about, and that's what Jesus is talking about when Jesus quotes Daniel, because they're talking about the same thing. And we can see this demonstrated two chapters later in Matthew. In Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64, when he was being questioned by the high priest, Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus told the high priest who was alive in 30 AD that he would see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. And Jesus said in 30 AD, from now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming with the clouds. So I believe this is referring to not Christ's coming to earth, but Christ's coming to the Father to sit at his right hand and to have dominion. And Jesus says in Matthew 26 that that was a first century event because it was going to happen in the high priest's lifetime. Let's get to the last thing in the, this set of verses is potentially confusing. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of, end of heaven to the other. So the word translated angels here literally means messengers, and I personally think that this is likely referring to uh, Christ's gospel being spread throughout the earth and to the church growing bigger and bigger, until the end of the age from 70 AD onward, or from Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father onward. And I kind of want to close this section on verses 21, 29 through 31 by saying one last reason why I think that even that part happened in 70 AD. In verse 34... After verses 29 through 31, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
So that's my case for why verses 29 through 31 most likely happened in 70 AD. Uh, I want to clarify a few more things with this passage. In verse 36, he likely makes the transitions. He's probably making a transition from talking about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to talking about the second coming. So, because the disciples at the beginning of the chapter ask two questions. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away, and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, uh, but he answered answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us when these things will be. So these things, referring to no stone being left on top another. And then the disciples ask a second question, and what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? So in verse 36, he's probably making a transition to their second question. Uh, I didn't write down verse 36, or did I? Oh, yeah. Verse 36 starts out, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. So I want to kind of contrast these two descriptions. The first part of the chapter describing the events of 66 to 70 AD and the second part of the chapter probably describing his second coming. The first one has signs and can be expected, predicted, and identified. The second one doesn't have signs. He says no one knows the hour, not even the angels nor the Son of Man. The first one can be predicted. The second one is happening at a time you don't expect. That's reason to think he's probably talking about two different things. All right, so hopefully that got explained fairly well. I want to make some closing arguments just before our conclusion. Closing arguments that the first half of Matthew 24 is talking about 66 to 70 AD. First off, when Jesus was talking with the disciples, they weren't talking about a future temple. The disciples were looking at that temple and pointing about that temple and talking about that temple. So the conversation was about that temple. So any destruction of a temple isn't a future temple, it's that temple. And that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. I also want to point out, uh, so... Luke also has an account of the Mount Olivet Discourse, and he includes a few details that Matthew doesn't include. Let's look at Luke 21, verses 10 through 19. And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this... They will lay their hands upon you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance to your gain your lives. Who was he talking to? Jesus was talking to the disciples, the disciples who lived and died in the first century. And Jesus says to the disciples who lived and died in the first century that during this time you will stand before kings. Not some unknown people from the 21st century. Jesus was talking to the disciples, telling them that in this time, they would stand before kings. And my last closing argument is just Matthew 24, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That generation has passed away. 
And it's the same Greek word for generation as is used in Matthew 23, verses 34 through 36. Let's look at those. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." You know, it really doesn't get more straightforward than Matthew 24, verse 34. This generation won't pass away till all these things take place. This happened in the first century. So in conclusion, the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that already happened in 70 A.D., and if you'd like to examine this even more, uh, translations of the Wars of the Jews and other books that Josephus wrote are available on Amazon. As we'll continue to see in next week, the Bible doesn't give grounds or reason to think that the world is getting or is going to keep getting worse and worse. There's no biblical ground to think that. Matthew 24 is one of three main reasons people use to defend the type of thinking that things are just going to get worse and worse and worse, but Matthew 24 is clearly not talking about our future. Matthew 24 is done and over with. At least the great tribulation of it is. So let's have our communion meditation. For our communion meditation, let's turn to 1 Timothy 1, verses 14 through 16. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Jesus' love is enough to forgive any sin, and his power is enough to defeat any sin, and his blood is enough to pay for any sin. We should never worry that oh, this is the worst sin I've ever done. Maybe Christ won't love me anymore. If we ever start to think that, we should come back to 1 Timothy 14 through 16, where Paul says, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Let's praise him as we come to the table.